So the text of the sermon is Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7. Christmas is obviously a wonderful time uh, for Christians. Uh, we're celebrating the birth of our Lord, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Even worldly people who don't serve God, they know some of the basics of the Christmas story, usually. They know about the virgin birth. They know about the baby born in a manger. There was no room in the inn. They know about angels singing to shepherds and wise men coming from the east. And for those who believe all this is true, this is actually still only the beginning of the Christmas story. It's only the, the, the basics are only the, the backdrop to the real story. It's a story that increasingly seems like we, our culture wants to remove Jesus from the picture altogether. Uh, we've seen this. It's, it's not a, a new thing. I think it's always been part of the devil's plan. Uh, I recently read about Charles Schultz, who was a committed Christian. Um, he was asked, I think, 50 years ago to do Charlie Brown Christmas, and they wanted him to leave Jesus out of it completely. He said, no, I will not do that. And that's why at the end of the Charlie Brown Christmas, you have the entire Christmas story. Some One of the characters is just reading the Scriptures. And it's also the one time where the character Linus, who always had his blanket because he was always scared, during the Christmas story, he drops his blanket. Jesus is the actual reason for Christmas. And the birth of Christ, as I said, is only the beginning. To remove Christ from Christmas is to make just another secular holiday. But to understand the real meaning of Christmas, I think you have to go back to the very beginning. Adam and Eve were created by God. On the sixth day of creation, they were placed into a majestic and wonderful garden. They had perfect fellowship with God. They were perfect and holy and righteous. No sin. But they fell from God's grace. They believed the serpent rather than their creator. And they brought all of mankind into sin and misery. We fell from God's perfect holiness as the human race without any hope of recovery. But God, but God in His great mercy, He continued to reveal Himself to mankind. He refused to allow us to perish as a race. How did He do this? Well, before all time, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, agreed to come to earth as a man to save a fallen humanity. He left His throne in heaven put flesh on and came to earth, becoming a man. And this happened in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Why was this necessary? Why did God have to become man? Why couldn't an angel pay for our sins? Why couldn't God become the, 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 the recipient of God's wrath Himself? Why couldn't the Son take God's wrath without being man? Why couldn't some other good holy man on earth Take the wrath of God. It's because of the, the infinite holiness of our God. Makes every sin infinitely egregious. 
This is why those who fail to come to Christ spend an infinite time in hell. There's no small sin against a holy God. His holiness is, is, is perfectly pure and holy and just and infinite in all of its attributes. We can't even see it. If we were to see it, we would instantly perish. So the only man who could pay the just penalty for the sin of man was another man. And this was what God did. He sent His own Son to become man. But His Son had to put on human flesh in a way in which He could be holy. That's why we have the virgin birth. Not that Mary was holy. Not that Mary was sinless. Again, the fact that the holy God even entered the sinful woman's womb was a miracle. But what we see is 100% God and 100% man living inside the womb of this girl. He was born a sinless baby. He lived a perfect life. The life that Adam was supposed to live. He suffered and died a perfect sacrifice for sin on the cross. This was his purpose. This is the story of Christmas. This baby was born to die. He paid the penalty for all who would believe in him because he was an infinite being, fully God and fully man. He was able to satisfy the infinite wrath of God hanging on the cross. Some people think that his time on the cross, well, it's six hours. You can do anything for six hours. The infinite wrath of God. He drank it to the dregs. He could only do this because he was an infinite being himself. But after three days in the grave, he rose victorious. He rose victorious, defeating sin and Satan forever. And this sealed the doom of Satan. Christ was seated on His throne in heaven that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the story of Christmas. All of that. The real story of Christmas isn't simply the baby in the manger. The baby in the manger is a chapter in the middle of God's redemptive story. It's like if you're a World War II history buff, D-Day was a significant day. And it was the beginning of the end of the Nazi regime. But there was still much fighting left. There were still many years of, or many months of fighting before the final defeat of the German army. So the birth of Jesus was just the beginning of the end for Satan. And we still are the church militant. We are still in battle today. Although our victory is assured. So the real story of God becoming a man was that He came to die to save those who were His. Well, an important part of that redemptive story is understanding that Jesus was perfectly holy. He was without sin. And this is why part of the reason why the virgin birth is so important. So we're going to read Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 15. Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 15. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? It's been preserved by the Holy Spirit for you this morning. Hear this good and right word. 
verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that we don't have in the word of God bits and pieces and uh, different segments that really don't work together at all. We have one unified scripture, one message from Almighty God, and that message is a message of redemption. These words that we read, written 700 years before the birth of Christ, Proclaim the herald of the coming of your Son. We thank you. We pray that you would open our eyes to see the truths, that you would soften our hearts to hear your word, to receive your word with humility, with joy, and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Born of a virgin. We're going to talk about the text. We're going to talk about why it's important. We're going to talk about some challenges um, that a secular society has placed upon these doctrines. The virgin birth was one of the very first doctrines of the Christian church that came to be attacked, to be rejected. Most recently, the higher critics of the 19th century, these were humanistic, enlightenment, modernists. Um, the Bible was treated just like another piece of literature, even by Christian, supposedly Christian theologians who were wrapped up in this humanistic philosophy. Of course, the effect was to undermine the authority of the Scriptures, but they, they really sought to, 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 to humanize God, to demythologize the Scriptures, to explain away all the miracles, and to show ultimately that Jesus was not divine. That was the net effect. Today, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is still, still seen by liberals as the, the mythological entry story of Jesus. It was a virgin birth. To go along with the mythological exit story of Jesus, the, the death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. New York Times wrote just a few years ago, the Christian faith in the virgin birth reflects the way American Christianity is becoming less intellectual and more mystical over time. Less intellectual and more mystical. This is what Christians have always believed about the coming of Jesus Christ. As if the belief in the supernatural is somehow not intellectual. You can't be intellectual and believe God, is what they're saying. Well, this only makes sense if you're an atheist or a naturalist. But for the Christian... The miracles of the Bible are very reasonable. They don't imply a lack of intellect at all. J. Gresham Mason in the early 1900s addressed this very issue of the virgin birth in a book. It was called The Virgin Birth. And the whole point was to prove that the Scriptures teach it and Christians must believe it. 
that was his point. But is the belief in the virgin birth even necessary to being a Christian? Is that really that important? Now, early in your Christian life, you can be a Christian and really not know or understand or believe lots of things. You believe the gospel, but as soon as the truth is spoken to your ears, you have a duty to embrace it and believe it. So a person who hears what the Bible says about the virgin birth and then rejects it is actually rejecting God Himself. You're rejecting Jesus. Because among other things, you're rejecting the divine nature of our Lord. So yes, it's a critically important doctrine for all of you to understand and believe. And hopefully by the end of this morning, you'll be able to understand it, believe it, and then actually explain it to those who might want to reject it. And like all orthodoxy, all good theological knowledge, it produces the warmest doxology. All doctrine, rightly understood, produces praise. It produces worship. in the hearts of all God's people. So as we go through the text, let's look at just a couple things. The first point I want to make to you is that we should trust our faithful God. We should trust our faithful God, unlike Ahaz. In verse 10, God speaks to Ahaz through Isaiah. The Lord spoke to King Ahaz and said, Ask a sign of the Lord your God and let it be a as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. This is part of God's really speech to King Ahaz through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah. And you need to know King Ahaz was not a good king. He was not a faithful king. He ruled in Judah where the majority, actually all of the faithful kings came from, but he was not faithful to God. He was like the northern kingdom full of idolatry, he actually closed the temple. He sacrificed to other gods. He's a wicked man. And yet, the context of these verses is that there were enemies that were coming and surrounding Jerusalem. And it says that King Ahaz shook. He shook. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. They're terrified. Now these are King Ahaz and the people of Jerusalem had rejected God in large measure for many, many years. And in the midst of this, God sends Isaiah to the king. Facing great destruction, facing attack from all corners. And God speaks to Ahaz words of comfort. He told Ahaz to ask for a sign. He said, you will not be destroyed. Jerusalem will not be destroyed. And Ask for a sign. Ask anything, King Ahaz, and I'll do it. Look at the grace of God. He's trying to, to actually stir up faith in this wicked king. And yet Ahaz, in verse 12, refused to ask. He blatantly rejected God. He even said that he would not, and he cloaked it in religious language, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. This is absolute rejection, disobedience, clothed in pious language. He doesn't believe God. He doesn't want to believe God. So he will not ask for a sign. And this is the same wickedness shown by the Jews in the time of Christ. It's the same spirit seen in 
Adam and Eve, when they were tempted, it's the same spirit seen in all those who would disobey or reject the Lord at any time in history. It's an unbelief. It's a prideful rejection. In the time of Christ, all of the people of Jerusalem knew that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Lazarus was dead. He was made alive. The funeral was already long started. Days old. And Jesus came and raised this dead man who should be stinking by that time. Raised him from the dead. It was a, an astounding miracle. Everyone knew it. They rejected it. They just said, we don't believe. We will not believe. We will not bow the knee to that man. Similarly, the priests, they sealed the tomb and placed Roman guards all around it. And then these same guards came and said, there was an angel, the tomb broke open, and we ran away. They knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. They refused to believe. They refused to come to God. So what is God going to do in those situations? Is He defeated by the unbelief of man? Was He defeated by the unbelief of Ahaz? No, He tells Ahaz, it doesn't matter. Your disobedience and your unfaithfulness do not matter. I will bring deliverance to Jerusalem. I will show my own faithfulness. I will be faithful even when you are not faithful. So God says in verse 13, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? I think I need to back up just a little bit and remind you that all of the prophets are speaking in the context of covenant. They're covenant promises. The covenant of grace made to Abraham, made to Moses on Sinai, made to, to David. This whole conversation is based on covenant promises. And every prophet, when he spoke, was calling people back to covenant. Calling people back to the promises of God. It's impossible to understand any of the prophets unless you understand that context. The covenant promises of God. The prophets always spoke in reference to the covenant of grace. And this covenant, that the covenant of grace seen in Abraham, built upon with Moses and built upon again with David, is basically the same covenant. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will send a Redeemer. I will honor you and care for you and bless you. So the prophets always reference some element of the covenant of grace, usually calling people back from great disobedience into covenant relationship with the God who is always faithful. So that's why he says, Hear, O house of David. That should remind you of Deuteronomy chapter 6, right after giving the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is covenant language. Reminding, Hear, O David. Hear, O house of David. Reminding of the covenant with David himself. The Davidic covenant. This this dispensation of the covenant of grace ensured that David would never fail to have a descendant on the throne. And it's not dependent on man. So God, after patient instruction to the king and offering to show a miraculous sign to the king, now rebukes the king. And Isaiah, Isaiah thunders this rebuke and says, hear this, you, you house of David, you rebellious people, you prideful people. 
the whole salvation of man will indeed come through the house of David and you can't stop it with your unbelief. It's happening. Will not be hindered. The Word of God will accomplish its purpose. So he says, is it a small thing that you would weary men? Would you also weary my God? Meaning that, this is Isaiah speaking, I'm a man sent by God. You're talking to me as if this is nothing. You're actually rejecting God Himself. Christ told His own followers, those who reject you reject me. The prophet is all the more enraged at Ahab's response as well because he cloaks it in this, this language of piety. He says, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. The reality is it's an outright rejection of God and His prophet. God is faithful. What's the application point from this first point? Of, it's really to remember that God is faithful. He's faithful to His Word. We must not reject the Word of God, the miracles of God in the Scriptures, the messengers of the Word of God. The covenant of God is full of grace for all of His people. In our response to crisis, Ahab, Ahaz was in a, a great crisis, a terrible time for Jerusalem. Our response should not be Ahaz's response, which is to run to Assyria, to look for anything else that would help us. Our response must be to trust God, to trust His faithfulness, to trust His covenant promises, to remember that He's faithful, that His Word is true. He's a supernatural God, and He acts on earth then, and He acts on earth today. I often say we are not, we are not deists. We don't believe that God wound up the universe and then just stepped back and watched. Watched it tick along. I hope it works out. That's not our God. He's still at work today. As Christ said, He works even now. We believe that God still saves. He still hears. He still answers prayer. Using second causes, however He desires. God is the first cause of all things. The second causes are the free actions of man and the forces of nature. God uses free actions of men. He uses forces of nature to accomplish all that He does. And yet our confession helpfully tells us that God is yet free to work without, above, and against second causes at His pleasure. In other words, this is usually how God does things, but God can do whatever He wants. He's free to work without, above, and against any second cause at His pleasure. Ahaz was like this naturalist who said, God doesn't do anything on this earth. I'm not even going to ask Him. We shouldn't be so faithless like Ahaz, thinking God will not deliver us. He has no power to touch us. We shouldn't disbelieve God's good work when we pray. We should expect God to do things. Do you realize when God saves a soul, it's one of the greatest, if not the greatest, miracle of all time? A soul that's wicked and He makes it holy? That's a miracle. And we pray that God would bring salvation to a soul. It's a miraculous thing when it happens. The regeneration of someone. We should not be surprised when we pray for the growing of the church that miraculously God brings people and then He protects the church so that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's still at work miraculously hearing our prayers. Even the prayers you pray in your mind. Have you thought about that? The prayers you pray in your mind, God hears them. That's a miracle. How is it that He hears these prayers? That's because He transcends 
space, and time. And He knows all things. He miraculously hears our corporate prayers for the sick. Every week we come up here and Jerry prays. Our elders pray for the sick. Is that just a cute thing we do? No, we believe God hears those prayers. He hears our prayers for the sick and often secretly heals them, working without, above, and even against doctors and medicine at His good pleasure. And amen for that. I love doctors, but they mess up. He's miraculously providing for us and protecting us from physical harm. He's miraculously hedging about us and protecting us from spiritual harm that we don't even see. So when we pray, we're really praying with a belief that God hears our prayers. Brothers and sisters, we should not be like Ahaz, faithless, like these higher critics, these modernist liberal theologians who reject the miracles of the Bible and really all of God's influence in the world today. Why do they do that? Because they reject God, of course. These are at best deists and at worst atheists. Bottom line is they're lost and they share in the belief, the unbelief of Ahaz. Don't be faithless like Ahaz. Trust in God. Trust in God. His word is true. But as we've said already, God will not be hindered by faithless men. Ahaz's unbelief was nothing to God's plan. Therefore, verse 14, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Isaiah said. The Lord Himself will do it. He doesn't need your help. This is really a picture of salvation. It's a monergistic work of God. It's God changing a soul without any cooperation from the man himself. Yahweh will give you His own sign despite the weakness of man, God always acts in strength. He's faithful. So God's going to give a sign Himself. That's the first point. We should be faithful and remember that God is true and right. Secondly, let's look at His promises. God is faithful. And number two, His promises are always true. They're always true. And His promises, actually, if you see them clearly, are wonderful. It starts with the word, Behold. Behold. This is in the middle of verse 14. Behold. This is a word that's in the Old Testament used to describe some great change, some amazing, wonderful thing that's about to happen. It's used about 1,000 times in the Old Testament. And about 95% of the time it's translated, Behold! It's a word we don't use often in the English language, but it's very often used in Hebrew. It was first used by God when He told Adam and Eve, Behold! I've given you every plant yielding seed on the face of the earth and every tree bearing fruit, and you shall have them for food. God is saying, this is a wonderful thing I've given you. Behold, see it. It's used by the prophets constantly to get the attention of the people. Behold, doom is about to descend upon you. The wrath of God is about to be unleashed upon you. Behold. The word behold is often used by Jesus as well in the Gospels. The Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word is used 200 times in the New Testament. And it's always the same meaning. It's, it's, hey, look! Look at this! Luke and Matthew, not surprisingly, use the word behold when the angel's telling Mary that she would conceive as a virgin. 
So what are we to behold in this verse 14? What's the, the, the wonderful thing, the amazing thing that's going to follow? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which Matthew tells us means God with us. God with us. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. I want to spend a few moments talking about this. What exactly is this prophecy? I think we all kind of understand the idea of a virgin bearing a son. That's miraculous. But it's been significantly challenged ever since the time of Christ. Actually, the second century Jewish rabbis, maybe a hundred years after Jesus, began attacking this very verse, saying, well, that doesn't actually mean the virgin shall conceive. This wasn't referring to that man, Yeshua, and modern liberal scholars just pile on to cast doubt on this prophecy. But is there anything to it? And I want to explain it to you. I don't usually get into to detailed discussions of, of entomology and word origins, but look at this word, virgin, in the Hebrew. The word translated virgin in the Hebrew can mean either a young married woman or a virgin. It can mean either one, depending on context. And there's another word that also can mean both. So those early Jewish rabbis were arguing it doesn't actually mean virgin, it's mistranslated. It just means young married woman. There's nothing miraculous here. All Isaiah is saying is that this young married woman will conceive and bear a son and his name will be called Emmanuel. That's it. Nothing special. Well, we know that all the apostles believed that this meant virgin. Okay, so let's, let's not think about that right now. Let's just address this argument. No Israelite woman who was unmarried would not be a virgin. Unlike our culture, unmarried women are very sexually active. If you are an Israelite living at this time and you were not a virgin and you were a woman, you were going to die. There was no such thing as a, as a young unmarried woman who was not a virgin. So in one sense, it doesn't matter whether you translate it a young unmarried woman or a virgin. It's going to be a virgin. Except for extreme cases of rape, this person would be killed. And certainly, rape has nothing to do with this prophecy. So we can pretty much rule out that young married woman argument altogether. But there's something even more compelling, I believe. 200 years before Jesus was born, so this is 200 B.C., there were 50 Jewish scholars who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Now these 50 Jewish scholars, they, it was 200 years before Jesus. They had no dog in this argument. They had no dog in the fight. And these 50 Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew word for this word into the Greek word for virgin. And it's a very specific Greek word. There's no ambiguity in Greek. So these men translate this word that means either young married woman or virgin. They translate it virgin in the Septuagint, 200 years before Christ. All that to say, we can be confident that this is a good translation. Brothers and sisters, the prophecy was that the virgin would conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
This is the miracle. This is the sign. A virgin having a child. Well, there's another argument that modernist theologians would throw at this particular Scripture. They would say, well, Ahaz was a king surrounded by armies, armies surrounding Jerusalem. How does this prophecy bring any comfort to King Ahaz at all? How could this be for Ahaz in any way? If a virgin was to conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, and this was going to happen 700 years later, this has nothing to do with Ahaz. Again, people that do this are really showing their lack of understanding of the context we've already discussed. This is a covenant prophecy. It's on the basis of the covenant God had already made. So how was this an encouragement to Ahaz? In the same way that the promise of Christ's return is an encouragement to us. The Jews had a hope of a Redeemer coming. They knew in Genesis that that a Redeemer certainly would come and crush the head of the serpent. That's the promise of Genesis 3. God would indeed be faithful to His promise and send a Redeemer. So Ahaz, obviously not walking with God, would probably not understand it. But all of God's people who heard this promise would embrace it. The true saints of God would hear this prophecy and certainly be encouraged that God had not forgotten His promises and He would send a Redeemer. And praise God. So people who would challenge this prophecy as being truly about Christ are wrong. The amazing point is that the child born of the virgin would be God. That's amazing. Emmanuel, God with us. God would actually come to them. He would be with them. As God was with their ancestors in the wilderness for 40 years, in the fire by night and the cloud by day following the tabernacle. So God would eventually come to them, dwell among them and tabernacle among them again as a man. And that is part of the reason why we see in verse 15 this this little wonderful bit of information that this man shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. He was going to be a man. He was going to have a mind. And Jewish newborn babies, before they were given milk, were given a little curds and honey on the tongue to kind of get them ready for milk. This was going to be a real baby, is what verse 15 is saying. It's a real child. So, Let's recap just quickly. Look at the grace that's been shown. A rebellious king is told that he's going to be safe. God tells him, I know you're worshiping idols. I know you're worshiping false gods. But ask me for a sign and I'll give you a sign. And this king won't obey God. He will not believe. And God uses this wicked man ultimately to show his plan of redemption and the plan of a coming Messiah. And that all of His promises are eventually true. God won't be stopped by anyone on this earth. He won't be stopped by any false teachers. He won't be stopped by any king or or government official who opposes Him. He will do what He promised. And that's the third and last point. Let's look at the fulfillment of this promise. 
Would you turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Luke chapter 1, which we already read. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 30. Luke 1.30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And remember, Luke has already told us twice that Mary was a virgin. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. You, Mary, will conceive in your womb. You will conceive and bear a son. And He will be called great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father, David. Again, the Davidic covenant comes into play. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. She conceives and bears a son who's the Son of God. Let's look also at Matthew chapter 1. Let's flip to your left a few pages. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18. Matthew 1.18 The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, They shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Brothers and sisters, all this gives us great confidence. This is the truth of God's Word. The apostles really believed this was true. And so do we. The virgin actually did conceive. God became a man in the womb of this woman named Mary. And in this way, a holy God came into the world of sin yet without sin Himself. He was fully God and He was fully man. So if this is not true, if the incarnation is not true, then the Bible is not true and our redemption is not true. It's all hopeless. There's no other way that man could be born without sin except an act of God. No other way that our sin could be atoned for except a perfect sacrifice. If Jesus was not born by the Virgin Mary, by the Holy Spirit, then the entire Bible is a lie. This is the point that the Bible's been pointing to all the way up to this point, and it points back to everything after this. If this isn't right, then none of it's right. 
So yes, the virgin birth is an essential part of the gospel. You need to embrace it. You need to believe it. You need to love it. It's a promise of God coming to us as man to redeem and deliver us. And this promise was given to a wicked king who lived 700 years before the prophecy. So let's conclude with this. Let's look at Christmas clearly. Soon after this conversation with King Ahaz, a few chapters later in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah prophesies again concerning this Emmanuel who is God with us. In Isaiah 9 he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is wonderful. You need to remember this. If you have faith in Christ, Jesus is wonderful. Sometimes you feel like everything is falling apart in your life. Or the culture is so far gone, there's no hope at all. The darkness might feel like it's finally consuming you. We know that Jesus is wonderful. He can help anyone in any situation by any means. It's wonderful that our Savior, our Messiah, is actually Almighty God. He's Counselor. Jesus is our Counselor. Sometimes in life you're beset by difficulties. You don't understand what's happening. You're confused about the right way forward. You're confused about your situation in life. You're confused about why things are happening. There's only one who can help. He's given us His Word and His Spirit. He's called Counselor because all wisdom rests in Him. And He sent us His Holy Spirit, the Counselor. If any of us needs wisdom, we need to ask the One with the answers. And that's Christ. He's the Almighty King. The Almighty God. When you feel weak and helpless, when you feel alone and defenseless, defeated or surrounded, unable to resist, you're tired, you're weary. Remember that Jesus is God, the Almighty God. Mighty to save. No one can stand against Him. He's the King. And He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Trust that mighty God who was a baby in the womb of Mary. He's also everlasting Father. Think of the great comfort that a good Father provides. You have a sudden fear of the moment when you see uh, a great tragedy or, or have uh, a loved one in distress or who has died. You feel lonely or confused. Where you're confronted with your own end. Comfort your soul in this everlasting Father. He has no end. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He came to die that He might be the first to rise again. In His glorified body, even now, He's at the right hand of His Father in heaven. And we will be with Him again. Take hope and courage in our everlasting Father. Jesus is also our Prince of Peace. What causes you not to have peace? It's sin. And the sin, as you think about your sin, as you can, you contemplate your own sin, when Satan tempts you, 
to despair over your sin, reminds you of all your filthiness, you're worthless, you're unworthy. You can respond that these things are all true, yet you have a Savior. You have a Prince of Peace. It's because of Christ that you have peace. Because of the baby born in the manger, born of a virgin, this holy child born unto us, we have peace. Though you were filthy in your sin, you now are now whiter than snow. You were once abhorrent to the Father, but now you have perfect peace. Jesus is our Prince of Peace. If you don't have faith in Christ, then all of this is just words. It doesn't matter. Christmas is just another holiday. Go open your presents. Whatever. But if you love Christ, then all of this does matter. Knowing your Savior more intimately, knowing the, the means by which He came into the earth by the Virgin Mary, seeing the miracle prophesied 700 years before His birth come to pass. This brings us to a place of worship and great repentance. These things really happened. It's really true. The Son of God has come, and holy is His name. And may His kingdom rise in all of your homes today on this Lord's Day of worship. May the morning star rise in all of your hearts, giving you faith and repentance. May you seek the Lord on this holy day, this one day of the week to be honored by the Lord, especially as we anticipate the celebration of His birth tomorrow. If you do not know the Lord in this way, if you do not know Christ, embrace Jesus Christ as He's been offered to you this day. And thank God that all of His Word is true. He is faithful and His promises are true. And He did come, as He said, in the womb of a virgin to heal us and to save us as a man. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You that all of Your Word is true. It's absolutely true. Without any exceptions, Your Word is true. We thank You not only for revealing Your true Word to us, but we thank You that You have condescended to come to us. You were born as a man. The Almighty God became a man. Lord, such, such things are too wonderful for us to think about for too long. They're, they're too wonderful for us to understand that the infinite God could become a finite man and yet remain infinite in Himself. But we are so grateful that You did. And You paid the price for all those who would have faith in You. You brought us to Yourself. We are truly grateful. We pray that You would help us to honor You all this day for Your own glory, that we might be encouraged. In Jesus' name, Amen.